I wonder if you've ever had the thought, um, like I sometimes have, that you think, if everyone thought like me, the world would be a better place. Just me? I'm guessing by your chuckle, it's not the case. There's another way to think about that scenario, um, and I often daydream like this. It gives you an insight into me. But I wonder if, whether you've ever imagined if the world was just seven billion of you, just you, your personality, your skill set, your characteristics. Would the world be in a better place if it was just you? <laughs> no. I know for a fact the world might be more fun if it was just me, if seven billion mad straws, there'd be no mathematics. Uh, but it'd also be a harrowing experience because there'd also be no science or medicine. Everybody would feel like they're loved and cared for. I'm good at saying, hey, it's okay, it's going to be all right. But I freak out at the sight of blood. And so if you're, uh, if you're injured or cut, you're doomed in a world full of seven billion mat straws. Uh, I'm pretty sure we don't need any more convincing that a world of seven billion mat straws is not a better place. Um, but if you think about it, the world has people in it that are better than you and better than, better than me. It also has people that are worse, sure. But, um, you know, I think we have this idea that with enough time, with enough resources, with the right mix of people, the world's going to end up in a better place. It can be better. Or maybe if they just thought like me, we'd all get along and it'd be a better place. Um, but the truth is, there are better people here, and yet the world is still just as divided as it's ever been. It's still as lost, it's still as broken, it's still as hurting as it's ever been. Um, and I think we forget that we're the reason the world's like it is. No one else has been here. Hello, no one else has been here. I'm sorry if you believe in aliens. No one else has been here. Uh, it's just us and we're the reason the world's like it is. And we read last week with the story of the flood and Noah and the ark that God remade the world, God recreated the world. So we're expecting this new start for the world. Uh, but there's a problem. Noah's still here. Noah and his sons are still here. And it's not just the fact that humans are here that makes the world bad. It's not just the fact that humans are here. You'll remember that God created the world for humans to be here. But he also created the world for humans to be here with God and with God at the center of the world. And the issue with Noah and his sons, with the whole world post-flood, is that they want to be at the center of the world. They think the world will be a better place if they're at the center of the world. And that's what the Tower of Babel is all about. And we know the end of the story. They want to be at the center, but they end up scattered all over the circumference. So today as we look at this story, I, kind of, I want to show you that. I want to unpack the meaning of the text, that it's kind of about humanity wanting to be at the center and God at the periphery. And then I want to show you where it's going in the storyline of the Bible. And then finally, I want to look at some application for us today. What does this ancient, strange text mean for us today. You ready? Okay, let's unpack the meaning of the text together. Uh, in the ancient Near East, let's talk about the tower. 
In the ancient Near East, um, several thousand years ago, there were cities and they had towers in them. And the towers that were there were these towers and they were called ziggurats. That's Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T, a ziggurat. And a ziggurat um, was a religious structure and it had a purpose, but it wasn't the temple. This, is, this wasn't where the gods were worshipped. The purpose, however, um, was that it was a staircase. It was a staircase connecting heaven and earth. And it, a lot of these staircases, it was said of them that they had their heads in the clouds. Often their names were, you know, the, the platform between heaven and earth or the stairway to heaven. But it wasn't a stairway for humans to ascend. It was a stairway for gods to descend. And the purpose of having a ziggurat in your city would be to ask the gods, to get the gods to come down to you. That's what it was all about. And a ziggurat, like I mentioned, it wasn't where the gods would be worshipped, but the ziggurat, the ziggurat was a place where the gods would descend down that grand staircase and they'd go into the temple to be worshipped. And then on their day off, they'd go back up the ziggurat and they'd rest on top, they'd dwell on top, and that's where they'd have their needs met. That's where they'd uh, actually be fed and have their clothing and their shelter. And that, it, this is the place where they would dwell among the people. Um, so it sounds pretty innocent enough, right, to ask the gods to come down and be with you in your city. But why would you want the gods to be there? Well, in the ancient Near East, the kind of relationship that people had with the gods was a, a relationship of codependency. They both had needs that needed to be met. On the one hand, the gods, they needed, like I've mentioned, sounds strange, but they needed food, they needed shelter, they needed clothing. And they would get that from their slaves, which were the human beings. And you can imagine then the gods realized, well, if we wanted to be looked after, if we wanted our food, our clothing, our shelter, we need to look after the humans. We need to make sure the humans are prosperous that they can grow food so that we can eat, that they can make clothing, that they're successful and wealthy, that they can provide us with all of our needs. So there's this mutual relationship of dependency. And you can imagine in a relationship like this, a human realizes that um, to have the gods with them means to be looked after. The gods are going to provide for us and make us healthy and successful. That's what the gods want for us. So if we have the gods with us, we're going to be looked after and the world's going to be great. And with this kind of relationship, it's very easy then for the gods to become a means to an end. For the gods to become a way of getting what humans want. And this is what happens. This is how the humans relate to their gods. What's off in our story is that this is the way that people are treating the one true God. That they are going to God for what they want. They're, they want to be at the centre of their world and they want God to put them in the centre, to give them everything they need to be at the centre. We notice this in verse 4 where it says, Then they said, Come, let us 
build a tower, uh, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make, make a name for ourselves. You can imagine a place where God comes to dwell should be a place where his name is exalted. But what they're doing is asking God to come down so that they, their name can be exalted. This text speaks of humans wanting them to be themselves to be at the center of their world and not God. They bring God down to lift themselves up. That's what's happening here. They want to be at the center and they just want God to be at the periphery but enabling them to have what they want. So what, what's that mean then for the storyline of the Bible? If this is where we're at, if this is the story, what's going on here? Well, in the storyline of the Bible, um, Genesis chapter 11 is kind of the end of the first part of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 11. It's the end of the first part. And in the way, it acts as a summary of the human condition, of where humanity is at, at this point. Um, And what's really interesting is that humanity's gotten to a point where it cannot rebuild the world. But it, it cannot rebuild the world because it doesn't have a good picture of God. It, ha- it can't rebuild for itself a good picture of God. That's where humanity's at. And so God, after Genesis 11, comes Genesis 12, where God begins his program through Abram and through Abram's descendants through Israel, to reveal himself properly and truly because humanity's gotten to a point where it can't rebuild a picture of God. And so God must reveal himself to humanity properly and truly because we have forgotten what God is like. That's where we're at to. And Why would we need a true and better picture of God? Why do we need to relearn who God is? Why do we need to know who God is? It's because for our world to work best, we need God at the center of our world. And if God's to be at the center, then we've got to know him and know him truly and properly. I don't know whether you've ever asked that question, why Abraham, why Israel? You know, why did God choose a particular people? It's so that through them, through his relationship with them, we can come to know God properly and truly. And ultimately, he shows us that in Jesus Christ, who we understand through the backdrop of Israel. And so then, what does it mean for us? We've explored what it means. We've explored kind of the story and where we're at. What... what, does this text mean for us? I think it means three things. The first thing it means is that we have forgotten and we forget what God is like. That's what, that's the first critique of this text. We've forgotten what God is like. Have a look at verse 1 here. This is set up from the beginning of the story. It says, now the whole world had one language and one common speech. That means they got each other. They knew each other. You know, he talks my language, she talks my language, they got each other. Quite literally as well. But it says in verse 2, As people moved eastward, they found a plain 
in Shinar and settled there. We are east of Eden. We are east of Eden. We left God when we left the garden, and that was a long time ago, and we have forgotten what God is like. And so we know what happens in the storyline of the Bible. God ultimately reveals himself to us through Jesus. But this is true for us today as well. We forget what God is like. And we forget the place that is meant to have in our lives. We try to bring God down. We try to manipulate him to our own desires. We try and fit him in with our program. We try and control him. He becomes a little bit like uh, Aladdin's lamp and the genie inside Aladdin's lamp. You know, the expression's been used before, we turn God into a cosmic ATM. We sometimes make credits, we try to make credits, and we often take withdrawals, but that kind of transaction is not the relationship that God wants with us, nor is it at least a transaction where God is at the center. We're at the center trying to get what we want for ourselves. God cannot be cajoled, manipulated, tricked, flattered, bargained with, used and abused for our wants and desires. And there is a form of Christianity, not just out there as well, but maybe in our own hearts, there's a form of Christianity that says, I'll use God as a means to an end. God can get me my Western dream of health and success, of wealth, whatever it is for you. God can give that to me. But that's to miss the point, isn't it? It's to miss the point entirely. God being at the center of your life is not only true and right and where he should be, but it's good for you as well. C.S. Lewis once said, a car is made to run on petrol and it would not run properly on anything else. Little did you know about electric, electric cars, right? Anyway. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel for our spirits we're designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot make us happy. God can, sorry, God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. Someone once said, uh, sin is not a matter of morality or conduct, but a state of orientation of man's entire consciousness, which does not make God its center. We've forgotten what God is like and his proper place in our lives, which is that he's meant to be center. Now, friends, how do we overcome our forgetfulness? I want to give you two little ideas that you can take into your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. The first is to do with how you read the Bible. The second is to do with how you pray. Firstly, how you read your Bible. Read the Bible with him in mind. Read the Bible with God in mind. When you read the Bible... Don't go looking for an answer to your problem, at least not in the first place. Sure, you'll find it there somewhere. But go looking for Him and notice something about Him. This week on my, uh, my Tuesday morning, I happened to read the 
story of the woman who breaks her jar of perfume worth a week's wages and washes Jesus' hair with it. And it just made me think about what Christ is worth. And you just stop and you just enjoy that and you enjoy Him and you think about Him being worth that much. Is He worth that much to me? Look for Him. Notice something about Him when you read your Bible. Secondly, with your prayer life, it's interesting to think about what prompts us to prayer. I think it's great that anything prompts you to prayer, your needs, your desires, your wants. But when was the last time you went for His presence and not His presence? When was the last time you went for Him and just for Him into prayer? God's made to be at the centre. Secondly, we forget what our culture is like. We forget what God is like. We forget what our culture is like. Uh, This story and the book of Genesis was probably written to Israelites in exile in Babylon, in this place where this story is about, Tower of Babel. And this Babylon was a, a big, great, beautiful, smart happening city and it was written to Israelites in there to say hey remember something about the truth about the culture around you remember something about the truth of the culture around you and this comes out in some lovely and fun satire in verses 8 and 9 so the Lord scattered them from there from Babel all over the earth and they stopped building the city that's why it's called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. To the Babylons, the name of their city, Babel, meant gateway to God. You know, gateway to God. We know the way. To the Hebrews, that word sounded like the word for confusion. And so the author here is poking fun. He's like, that's why it's called Babel. Not because they're smart, not because they know the way to God, but because they're confused about it all. They're confused about life. They're confused about God. This isn't the way that it works. To be a part of Babylon is to think you're at the center of it all. But to think you're at the center of it all is to be deeply confused. And so this is kind of underground literature. It's kind of saying, you know, the world around you, the culture around you... uh, is not all that it seems. And I think there's something for Christians in this message. The world around us, Sydney and its culture, is brave, it's beautiful, it's big, it's smart. And this is where we find ourselves, and it's a great city. And this text is not to say that everything about our culture is bad, but it is to say when humans put themselves at the centre of their world, They are deeply confused. And we need to put God back in the centre. That means we engage with our culture differently to what people around us might. Um, I want to share with you very quickly how you might do that. Some practical stuff. And I owe this to Dr. Tim Keller. uh, But I found it helpful a couple of years ago when I read it. And I thought I'd share it with you. About not forgetting about that our culture is not God's way and how we might approach culture. He says, 
It's good to kind of ask three questions of anything you come across. The first is, you know, does this need to be celebrated? Is this something that you can align yourself with as a Christian, this thing in culture? A good example, I think, um, to, oh, the, second question, let me, the second question is, does this need to be critiqued? You know, does it need to be adjusted, this perspective on X, Y, or Z? Or does it need to be challenged? Does it just need to be stood against? A good example of this, I think, is food. Naomi and I have loved moving into the heart of Chatswood. Uh, because our culture in Chatswood celebrates food. And as Christians, celebrating food and drink is great. God wants us to celebrate uh, culinary experiences. Food, food and drink is great. And so Naomi and I love enjoying the diversity in Chatswood. We love enjoying the diversity of food. We love enjoying um, food with friends. We love eating. It's great. Um, so food can be celebrated. But there's something in our culture also that overestimates the place of food in our lives. That says, you know, this food experience or that food experience will change your life. Or you need to spend X amount of money on this food experience and that kind of food experience. There's an over-appreciation of food that needs to be critiqued. You know, we probably need to think through, well, my going out budget, my eating out budget, just how much money needs to go there. That can be critiqued. And then there's the overconsumption of food and drink, which we all know affects our health. It affects the human and is detrimental to us. Not only that, it's, it affects our environment. And so our overconsumption, I just think that needs to be outrightly challenged. And so there's a way where you might decide, actually, that's not, I'm not going to put myself at the centre. I'm going to put God at the centre. I'm going to treat the world and the things around me and my culture the way that God wants me to. I'm going to put God at the center of this experience. And I might ask those three questions. That's just food, but you can take those three questions with you into any sphere of life. We forget that our culture uh, is, is not the center of the world. God needs to be center of the world. Finally, uh, we forget what the church is. I think we forget what the church is. A whole summary of the Bible could be um, a whole summary of the Bible could be the story of God coming to be with us. That's a whole summary of the Bible could be that. And we saw that in Genesis chapter one at the very end, actually it's the beginning of chapter two, after God creates creation, he rests in it. He comes in it, and that's why the Garden of Eden's there. But then we know hum- humanity is pushed out of that relationship with God. And even after God creates the world in Genesis chapter 6 with the flood, God doesn't come to rest again. And he doesn't rest again until he comes in part into the temple. But there's still an anticipation that God will fully come to rest. And God fully comes in the person of Jesus and we see him and we experience him and he dies for our sins. Then he ascends into heaven and he sends his spirit. And where does he send his spirit? Onto followers of Jesus Christ, onto Christians, onto his church. And that is the place where God dwells. And so we begin to see in Acts chapter 2, the whole story of the Bible come to resolve. God comes to dwell in his world, in the church. That is why you and I are so important. That is why the church is so important. 
Because we are the beginning of a new world where God dwells with his people. We're the beginning of a new start for the world. This is where people experience God. You're the beginning of God's salvation for the world. And he uses us to spread his salvation across the world. You're the beginning of a world with God. You're the beginning of the world with God at the center. I started by talking about, you know, we try and save the world by putting ourselves at the center. That's what we do, and that's why this story relates to us. But we forget that there's only one name that the world will be saved through. There's only one name that will gather the world back to him, and that is Jesus. Acts 4.12 says, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders, and he has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The world will only be a better place when everybody gathers around one person, our God and Saviour, Jesus. That's why the church is so important, because it's the place where the scattered are gathered. It's centered around God, not around ourselves, not around anyone else. When we're at the center of the world, we'll find ourselves scattered. When God's at the center, we'll find ourselves gathered. When we're at the center of our own little wells, we'll find ourselves confused. When God's at the center, we'll find ourselves used to build and exalt His name in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for what you're teaching us through Genesis. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to remember that you are the center of it all. Help us, even this week, to make you the center of our lives. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the band to come up and we're going to sing together. Oh, Matt, you're going to come up?